there's always kind of this thing um, that, that I, I'll have little reminders about my job and, and the last 12 years at ESPN, like something cool happened. And when Adam McKay followed me, I was like, oh, I know it's because I made a joke about Sean Hannity on television. And then I went, you know, I'd love to have him on the podcast, but like this kind of rule with cool guys, you're like, eh, he's probably going to think I'm asking him for a favor. So we do have Adam McKay here who's done a million different great things that we want to get into. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And there was that little thing where you said something and I go, well, I can shoot him a note about the NBA thing. And then maybe later on, I'll see if he came on the pod. So here we go. So I appreciate you doing that for me. <laughs> my my pleasure. And I don't think I followed you because of the uh, Sean Hannity thing. Oh, I really? Think, uh, yeah, you're pretty knowledgeable on the NBA. I'm a huge NBA fan. You're always funny about it. I, I'm a legit uh, a legit fan through the sports avenue, believe it or not. Oh, all right. Because the timing of it was because I like it wasn't even a political thing. It just every now and then I'll examine kind of how I've done my job and I'll look at some people that are just killing it. And I go, is it better just to like just completely contradict yourself twenty minutes later in your own show? I'm like, I should have done more of that. Uh, but you know, when you got back to me, you said you want to talk about Chris Dunn. So here's the floor. Like, I didn't. Are you that big of a Bulls fan, or is this just a Chris Dunn thing? Uh, Chris Dunn was a fairly random reference, but I am a giant NBA fan, uh, and uh, I have been watching Summer League. I'm in the middle of edit right now on a new movie, and every night I go home and I have all the Summer League games TV'd, and I fast-forward through them and watch them. So, actually, Chris Dunn isn't even in the Summer League, but I, I just no. uh, figured as a fairly obscure NBA reference, NBA, uh, Chris Dunn was the way to go. Yeah, because if you could have done 30 minutes on Chris Dunn, that would have blown my mind. So uh, maybe we won't have to I do 30. I give you a good 10. Uh, <laughs> Are you a Bulls fan? Chris Dunn. Are you- I'm not a Bulls fan, but I'm uh, just an NBA fan. So I, I follow all the teams. And I really thought Chris Dunn was kind of intriguing. I thought when he was with the Timberwolves, it just looked like an absolute disaster. I wasn't seeing much. I mean, he was an okay defender. He could get up and down the court fast. And then all of a sudden, he's with the Bulls, and I started seeing little flashes, like the pull-up jumper looked a lot better. I saw some of the athleticism, some of the size he had. Where did he go? Providence, I think. And yeah. uh, and all of a sudden, I was like, oh, wait, maybe this guy can actually be an NBA point guard. And then they, you know, they made that deal for Jimmy Butler, and everyone just said, oh, my God, they got taken to the cleaners. And I thought by the end of the season, maybe that deal was a tie. And maybe you could even argue the Bulls even got him by like an inch on that with Laurie Markkinen. And, uh, you know, we got to see what, what happens with him. But uh, so I think the Bulls are kind of fascinating. And then Wendell Carter, uh, way better than I thought he was going to be. I think we all knew he would be a good player. But, man, the foot movement, the face-up game, just really impressive. Suddenly the Bulls are an interesting team. Yeah, see, I love, uh, you know what I love about rookies is they wait until after they're drafted to tell us the pronunciation of their name. So now it's Wendell Carter. So I was in Vegas for a couple days for Summer League, and that was one of the things I was able to pick up. But I, every time I'd watch him at Duke and then I'd go back because I do the draft every year, I'd be like, man, I, I kind of love this guy. And then the way mock drafts sort of hypnotize you into thinking, well, you can't possibly take him ahead of all the other guys that have been in a mock draft months ahead of time. But, um, I don't always love what the Bulls do, but that pick, I, at seven, like, I have a feeling we're going to come back to that going, why did more people not see the Wendell Carter thing? The one pick, you know, I always have to be the annoying guy who knows just a little bit about basketball, just enough to, you know, sound like I know what I'm talking about, but I really don't. Miles Bridges from MSU was the one I kept grinding away on. Like, that guy was in a terrible system. He had a couple bigs clogging the middle. 
I see crazy athleticism. I love the confidence, a nice shot, a thick body. Like, I just really thought that guy was a little bit of a steal as well. I think he's going to be in the NBA for a while. I'm not seeing, I'm not saying he makes like first team all NBA, but I think he could uh, see a couple all star games and I think he could just be a fixture on that team for a long time. So with LeBron in LA now, does that mean he reaches out to you immediately or is this like, how does that work? Cause I imagine you'd be on his, I mean, his to do list. Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird just because, you know, I'm in L.A., I'm me, so most of the new sports guys who come on the Dodgers, the Lakers, the Clippers, they call me first, and they kind of know if they don't, it's not going to be a pleasant stay. So, yeah, LeBron will run me up half an hour before he even announced it, and he just talked to Dow and me, we talked about the city. No, I'll be lucky if I'm ever uh, even in, like, a convention center with LeBron within 400 yards of him. Uh, if I ever even get to see him, the only chance I'm ever going to have is if at a live game. But uh, he's LeBron. Even in Los Angeles, there's like a bubble around him. He's still, people here are freaking out like they're uh, 12-year-old girls at, uh, what's that uh, Korean pop band's name? Um, I don't know it. My Korean pop, yeah, my Korean pop is lacking. That was one of my subjects I wasn't as good. What is that? I I think i got to get off this uh, line, and this is not what I was told was going to (laughs) happen. We'll have Saruti, my my IT millennial, will go back in Bristol and, and research that one up. Yeah, I've I've only lived out here a couple months, and I I'm always impressed with people in LA now. Just again, only being here a little time, just how not impressed they are with so much of what's around them. But the LeBron things in entirely different level. Like it's just it. Like I get it. It's the Lakers. It's the best player in the world, and it's all those things. But to see people that are in the everyday hustle of Los Angeles be this excited about something is impressive in itself because it just doesn't really happen out here oh i got i got texts from you know will ferrell's freaking out i'm freaking out like big high-powered studio executive i mean like people were just wild-eyed uh and then he really speaks to just how special he is i mean you know through the years we've had the up and down arguments about him you know he's the greatest ever is he even good enough to win a ring people get down on him they get high on him but now that we're coming out the other end, it's clear it's, you know, I think everyone agrees, right? It's between him and Jordan, greatest ever, and uh, and certainly for this time, this era, clearly the greatest ever. So, LA sports separate from TV and movies. It's just a whole different strata, and, uh, and man, oh man, are people geeked, and right away, like, calling people they know that have tickets, and just, I gotta at least go to three games, and... Uh, yeah, one of the I try to think of anything more exciting since I've been here sports wise. I came here when the the last of those Kobe championships, so that was pretty insane. But uh other than that I haven't seen anything like this. Yeah, and that's the Kobe thing too. Like when the mural stuff happened and people wrote three and six for LeBron's finals and then the artist who did the thing in Venice and every everybody, you know, that's following sports understands his story, and then the the artist actually painted over the mural himself was like, forget it. Like I don't want this vandalized. And what I I've always tried to explain to people, and the only reason I've gotten a taste of it was as a national talk show host, like anything you did that seemed as it was slighting Kobe. This, this Kobe it's not a Laker fan base, it's this Kobe fan base that is so like just obsessed with them. And I'm not saying it's wrong, but like there's there this Kobe 
this it's almost like this far left or far right Kobe fan base that doesn't want to have it. And I've I've tried to explain it to people and when they, the mural thing happened, they're like, Why would they do that? And you're like, No, dude, you don't understand. There's this Kobe mafia out there that just doesn't want to hear it. And that I think is like this we I think it's a small number of LA people, but it's a very vocal group. I had a buddy of mine who's one of those guys, I know exactly what you're talking about, like just die hard, like blood brother in it, you know, for life on Kobe. And I had a friend of mine, when they got rid of Shaquille O'Neal, I said, this is a mistake. They had another ring or two in them. And you just don't do that in the NBA. You don't give up another ring or two when it's right in front of you. And my friend was like, you're wrong. Kobe will, you know, he's the better of the two. I was like, you're nuts, man. And what was it like? They got Pau Gasol, so it was a then there was a gap there though with Miami. So I was ahead of the argument. Then <laughs> Pau Gasol came, and Kobe got a couple, and then we even gave it a couple of years to just kind of let the whole thing finish. And then so it was a total of like seven, eight years later. One day, my friend just gets in my face and is like, "I told you," and he did not forget. Uh, yeah, they get they get nuts on Kobe. I think you're you know he has that polarizing style of play where let's face it it's all about him but he's so good he can pull it off and something about that some people go crazy for i mean he's definitely one of the greatest of all time but i still think they should have kept Shaq. but anyway yeah i mean the Shaq thing i don't know that i would have given in if i were you as quickly your friend about the Shaq kobe thing because the Shaq thing was like remember he wanted like a hundred million dollar extension and i think for then it would have been i think it would have been over five years and they're like, look, dude, you, you don't work out. You, you're not dedicated to this, and that's great. But, like, you bring up a really good point because I think the Warriors are going to be staring at this luxury tax bill where you could have argued, do you get out of it early to save yourself? But it's almost like I'd rather, like, even if the Lakers had kept Shaq and gotten one more ring, wouldn't have been worth it because by the time they got Powell years later, they would have cleared the deck and maybe had the second run with Kobe anyway. So, I mean, I have to go back and look at all this stuff because what they gave up for Powell at the time was literally nothing. And without Powell and just Kobe, like, I think that was a seven-seed team at one point. So, I mean, it started looking. That's when Kobe went on the warpath then saying, like, I want out of here anyway. So, um I don't know. Like I wish I I could have I could have given you an index card of notes to go. Maybe we'll put together an argument and you can text him back this stuff later. I know. I still kind of think I'm not that wrong, but I, it's hard I like to argue that. with him. I mean, here's the crazy thing about what we're talking about is that Paul Gasol was that good. Like Paul Gasol coming to that team, it's hard to believe he kind of to some degree filled a, a, a shackle. Now, granted, they had Lamar Odom, they had other guys who were really good, but. I always forget how good Paul Gasol was. Like, is he a Hall of Famer? Yeah, I think he end up, he'll end up being one. And the thing is, too, like, think about how much fun he didn't have. All he did was get yelled at Kobe for like every every single play that went wrong, and he transformed them into a championship caliber team. He really did, you know. And a lot of it was there were some other pieces around there. But yeah, I think he'll look. Everybody gets into the Basketball Hall of Fame, so he'll get in. I mean, everybody gets in. Every year, I'll go through it and be like, there's three people I've never even heard of. And they're like, oh, this is the best yeah, referee right. in the history the of Belgium. Yeah, stuff, too. The, yeah. the Olympic medals. Yeah, totally. Those great Spanish teams he was on. I think the combo of that, actually, I think you're right. I think it's even a no-brainer. I don't know if he's first ballot. He might be, though, because of the international play. Yeah, he probably will. I think, look, everybody kind of gets in. So I, I'm... I wouldn't worry about it for him, not that, not that you're worried. The reason I asked you about the Bulls thing is because, and, you know, going through your background more and more last night, and we all love your movies, and, um, I remember promoing a couple of them when Will would come by ESPN, so he was always, you know, a really great guest to have on. Um, but you did a lot of improv when you were in Chicago. 
So that kind of like that start, like I want to talk a little bit about the start because here you are, this incredible writer director. But when you started off, like I assume you wanted to be on the air and be a comedian, like like everybody else, correct? Yeah, yeah. I was in uh, Philadelphia. It was nineteen eighty six, eighty seven. I was at Temple University, and the comedy thing was just blowing up. It was stand up comedy was just huge, and there were clubs opening everywhere. And also, Letterman was fairly new and fresh. And I just always loved comedy. And then when the stand-up thing hit, I was just like, oh, i got to do this. So I ended up going to Temple University, started doing stand-up at open mics, and, and then eventually started getting some jobs. But I was good, but I wasn't great. I was okay. I liked, I could work. I had a couple funny jokes, but I was like, oh, man, this isn't quite right. And then the more jobs I would get the worse my act would become because you have to come up with kind of this bulletproof act that you can go into like, I mean, I literally remember, you know, doing 20 minutes at a seafood restaurant that was owned by the mob, like, and (laughs) you do these strange shows. And so by the end, I was like, man, I really, I don't think I would like my act if I saw it. And then a friend told me about this whole new scene that was happening in Chicago and at first he just told me improvisation and I knew about like improv games, like, you know, freeze, you know, and tag people out and sing songs. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And he's like, no, no, there's a whole new thing going on called long form improv where you essentially improvise plays and whatever you say on stage happens. And he told me about this guru, this guy Del Close that was teaching it. And I was just like, you gotta be kidding me. I don't know what got into me, but I just was like, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. And, you know, there's no internet back then, so I wasn't able to look at tapes of it. It was almost entirely off my friend telling me about this who had been out there. And I dropped out of college. I was in my senior year. Your senior year you dropped out? Senior year. I had, had, I think, 20 credits left at that point. So it was probably going to be senior year plus a couple classes. And I had an old comic book collection from when I was younger that I knew was worth some money, so I sold it. And I got a Chrysler New Yorker with shag carpeting and an eight-track player in it. And the only eight-track it had was Jethro Tull's Greatest Hits. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I drove out to Chicago and just walked into this improv theater, the I.O., where Del Close taught. And that night, I went and saw a show, and it was like nothing I had ever seen before. It was a packed house, 150 people jammed into this like kind of club restaurant. And these people on stage doing completely off-the-cuff long-form improv, and they were like rock stars. It was incredible. And from that moment on, I was just hooked into that scene. And what's great about that scene is it's performing, but it's also equally writing. Uh, So you're developing both muscles at the same time. And uh, so I ended up staying there for about almost six years. And out of that, we spawned the Upright Citizens Brigade, who are still around to this day, theaters in New York, here in L.A., and I got to perform at the Second City and uh, with the I.O. on an improv group for a long, long time. And it was an incredible experience. I learned a whole different way of looking at writing, at comedy, at performing, at directing. I got to direct shows as well. And uh, it was really the perfect situation. Chicago was, like, affordable, yet it was a big city. There's kind of no theater scene like Chicago's theater scene in America, too. There's just tons of little theaters everywhere. And critics will come review your shows, whereas in New York, you can't get anyone to review your shows unless you're a big theater. So uh, it ended up being, like, just creatively one of the most fertile times ever. And I met all these people that I'm friends with to this day. 
Can you tell the Horatio story about the revolution skate that you guys used to do? <laughs> well, that was when we first started the Upright Citizens Brigade. We were doing improv at the I.O., and we loved it, but we had all these other ideas we wanted to do, like written sketches and kind of more, I don't know what you would call it, not quite performance art, but a little bit like live street stuff. So our first Upright Citizens Brigade show was called Virtual Reality, and this is when no one knew what virtual reality was. There had been just a couple articles about it, and the whole premise was that the show was like you were stepping into virtual reality. So we would do this bit where Horatio would lead the audience out of the theater onto North Avenue, which is a very busy street, with uh, plastic uh, pitchforks and uh, fake torches. And he was leading the revolution, and he was going to go get this corrupt congressman who had an office up the street, this guy, Dan Rostenkowski. And that's a real guy, and, too. You know, that's it a real a, guy. Yeah, he was a right, real congressman then, and he was kind of known as one of the most corrupt congressmen. And the whole premise was that it had started with a little meeting about putting a stop sign in in the community, and Horatio had jacked it up into a full-scale revolution. Meanwhile, I was doing another bit where I pulled someone out of the audience and went on a Jack Kerouac on the road trip with them in a car, and we videotaped it, and we would bring it back and play it to the audience. So the end of Horatio's bit was supposed to be me coming around the corner in my car going pretty slow, you know, 15 miles an hour or something so, or 20. So Horatio could lean into my front bumper and I would hit him and kill him and that would stop the revolution. But this one night I came around the corner to see a cop car and Horatio being arrested. <laughs> and, uh, and we were filming it. So I actually still have this tape to this day. And Horatio is being cuffed by the police, pushed into the cop car. You know, that thing they do where they push your head down to get in. Yeah. But he refuses to break character. And he's yelling, fight the power. And there's a crowd of like 100 people around the car, maybe even more, <laughs> cheering with fake torches and pitchforks while he's yelling, fight the power. And then my car drives on. And uh, I came back to the theater and we all started raising bail money for him. That's great. God, him just yelling, fight the power. He's like one of those guys that, you know, I think about all these people that came from this, this run. Um, but he's one of those guys, like every now and then he can just look at the camera a certain way and it, and it cracks me up. Like there's just, he doesn't really have to say anything. And I don't, I don't, like, I think that's actually harder than saying a line and just being funny. Um, oh, absolutely. When, he's, he's just a, he's a lip fuse. I mean, that was always ratio, one of the most unpredictable performers. When we were later at Saturday Night Live, I, I got hired and then was lucky enough to become a head writer. And I was like, you got to hire Horatio. So he came on board. And there was a bar called McManus that was kind of the center of the improv community where everyone would go drinking. I think it might still be there, although they were talking about closing it as Manhattan keeps getting priced out. But one night I heard a story that Horatio was there extra late till 3 in the morning and a song came on the jukebox. I think it was Nirvana that he was so into he ended up smashing a chair through the jukebox. And the next day, came into the bar kind of hat in hand, like, oh, my God, I screwed up. And he's going to talk to the owner about paying for it. And the owner, this old tough guy, just goes, hey, Horatio, we don't serve holy water here. I get it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> all, all, all of these stories only could have happened, like, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Like, you could never take an audience in the street now. You'd all be arrested. If you smash a jukebox, you'd be wet like this is like that time right before social media where you could get away with some of this stuff. So you're at SNL uh, 95 to 2001. And actually, if I have this right, but you you tried out for on camera and then you just they were like, no, like, how did that go down? 
Yeah, you know, I've just never been a guy. I don't do big impressions. I don't do large characters. I'm mostly myself. And then when I do do characters, they're fairly two-dimensional. I, I think my strength was always writing and improvising. I think I was good at that. And I was, you know, I was an okay performer. But uh, so when I auditioned, I knew, I was like, man, I don't really have the, the guns to do this. So I brought some scripts with me. And when I got off stage, I had them. And I just said, I'm also a writer. And I handed it to Lauren. It was the smartest move I ever made. Because uh, then, yeah, a couple weeks later, I got called in and hired as a writer. So when you're doing that, I, I, I've talked to some people about it, you know, and I just, I guess I'm always curious, like how you can have an idea and then you're like, I think a lot of people can come up with just like, okay, hey, here's the idea. Like, this is what I want to do. But then selling it in the room and then seeing how people react to the thing. And like, you might get it and you might think it's funny, but how tough is the process of concept, writing it down, but then selling it enough in the room where it's actually part of the lineup on Saturday? Yeah, I mean, the, the trick with the pitch meeting, which is on Mondays, is if you have a really good idea, you don't want to pitch it because then everyone knows the joke for the read-through on Wednesday. So a lot of times what the pitch meeting is is an exercise in doing fake pitches that sound good enough that you don't embarrass yourself in the meeting, but you also don't give your joke away. So that part of it was never a problem. And to Warren Michaels' credit, you would just, you know, as a writer, you were allowed to write a couple sketches, and you could write with other people sometimes. Some weeks I would have five, six sketches. And you just get in that room, and the host is there, and the cast is there, and you read them. And if they're funny, if they play in that room, they're going to at least go to dress rehearsal. And, you know, there are exceptions to that. There's certainly times where everyone feels ripped off, letting my great sketch get in. But I always give Lon a lot of credit for that. There are a lot of producers who micromanage much more, and they'll tell you what to write, or you have to write something like that. But he really gave us a crazy amount of creative freedom. And because of that, we were able to get some pretty insane stuff on the air, the sketches I don't think you would have ever seen in any other show because the producer would have you know, been too nervous or over your shoulder the whole time. Now, once you and Will start putting together these, these great movies, and I think one of the great things about them is that even if I don't love them at first, I'll, I'll catch it again and I'll go. And I know I don't mean that. Like, I don't think I appreciate how funny they are until like the second or third time that I've seen them. And I think everybody's talking about Step Brothers now as the 10 year anniversary is, is, is happening. Can you tell me how Talladega Nights turned into kind of Step Brothers? Cause I, I think I never knew that story, but I was reading about it this morning and I think that's really interesting. Uh, which part about how we came up with the idea? Well, I, I think from what I read, it was that you almost just wanted to take a break from these massive, you know, ensembles, and, and instead it was, hey, we want to just focus on... Like, I think John C. Riley's in a way, like, one of the most underrated actors ever, because I feel like he can do everything, which is incredible. And, everything. I couldn't right. agree more. And so, I, I think what I had read is that, like, after Talladega Nights, you guys were burnt out, but when you saw the chemistry between John and Will, then you went, okay, you know what, let's just do something really simple... And that, I believe, from and against, I just read the wrong interview. Um, it, it seemed to be kind of the birth no, no, that's, of, of that's the script. Exactly, that's exactly it. We, we did Talladega Nights, and it was like so incredibly, it was so much bigger than Anchorman as far as budget and scope. And we, without exaggeration, were shooting live scenes in the actual pit row of an actual race, improvising during the race. We had these giant crashes. We had cars. We had all these different locations. You know, you're down in the south, it's 97 degrees, you're on hot macadam, and it was exhausting, although, you know, I loved it and couldn't have been happier with how the movie turned out. 
yeah, we walked away just saying one thing for sure. We got to do another movie with John C. Riley, and I kept saying, let's do something that's simple. Let's do, you know, an improv. There's kind of a game you can do sometimes that's just called playing house. And you basically establish who the parents, who the kids are, who the uncles are, the friends are, and then you just improvise and improvise and improvise and improvise. And once you know who your characters are and you start painting the picture of the world, it becomes one of the funnest things you can do. Everything becomes very easy and real. So I kind of had that in mind with it. I, I, I thought, let's just do something that mostly takes place in a house and just get really great actors that we've always loved uh, you know, we'll obviously ask them before we cast them, are you okay improvising? Because some actors aren't. And that's exactly what happened. We just were able to get this kind of murderer's row of people that we just loved. And not necessarily big names, like Catherine Hahn had done a very small role in Anchorman, but we knew she was fantastic. Richard Jenkins I had seen in Floating with Disaster, and he made me laugh so hard in that. I was like, we have to work with him. Mary Steenburgen, and I'd obviously seen a lot of stuff, Melvin and Howard being one of my favorites, but we were big fans of hers. And then Adam Scott had auditioned for us, and we just couldn't get him out of our head. So that was really the goal. The goal was let's get into a house, and let's just run film, and let's improvise, and let's make each other laugh. And we knew it was going to be one of the craziest movies we made. We knew the premise was absurd. And we kind of just looked at each other and we're like, I don't care. I don't care what the critics say. You know, I, if, if it's funny, I'm happy with it. Yeah, I still think it's another one of those things. Like, I, I actually think it's amazing in that the I'm not I'm, look. I'm not trying to sound like some sophisticated guy here and like the art of what you're doing. But I'd I'd rather in a way be like, wait a minute, do you guys realize how funny that scene is? Or like there'll be something the, the the fifth time I, I was watching Talladega Nights again the other night and it was on and I, I just threw it on for 20 minutes and I was like I don't think I necessarily even got how funny that was I mean Anchorman I loved from the moment I saw it but it just got funnier and funnier every time What's your favorite story maybe that we don't know you know the thing maybe you tell at a cocktail party so like the thing about Step Brothers behind the scenes like there would be nothing funnier than we ever heard that John and Will didn't get along but I know that's not true uh, but like what's the thing that you tell your friends ask you about or like your best story from the production of that movie oh you know I think I'm trying to remember if any craziness happened I mean a lot of it was just for instance, we're shooting the scene where they're sleepwalking on Christmas Eve and they start bringing the presents in and throwing them at their parents. And I just remember like, oh my God, this is really funny. And then we start doing the thing where like Richard Jenkins is like, I'm going to wake him up. And Mary Steenburgen's like, you never wake up a sleepwalker. And he's like, that's a myth. <laughs> and he wakes him up and they start beating him up and grab him and throw him down the stairs I just remember laughing so hard that I like pulled a muscle on my side and like on the car ride home that night, I had a headache from laughing so hard. So there were a lot, Oh, you know, there was a scene that was cut. <laughs> there was a scene that was cut from the movie with John C. Riley and Catherine Hahn sneak into the side room for, I think it's Christmas Eve dinner and start having sex and they slide over and end up popping through the door facing the entire family, but he's, he's basically having sex with her from behind. So her dress is down. So you can't quite tell. And we played this entire scene where John C. Riley and Catherine Hunter are having sex while she's talking to her husband and the whole family. And that got cut out of the movie. And that's one of the funniest scenes we've ever shot. Um, so there's a lot of the best stories are the ones that we shot that were crazy funny. Like you had a headache from laughing 
And then you would put them in the movie, and sometimes the audience would just go, that's too crazy for us. Like, no and in the screenings? So they didn't like the dinner yeah, sex scene in the screenings? do like four or five test screenings to try and, and... And with certain scenes like that, I'll just keep putting it in the movie, just trying to get them to work and trimming them and like, all right, what if going into it, we do a dissolve instead of a cut? Or what if we play this song? Or, all right, let's cut it in half. And you just try and try and try. And uh, so those were some of the best memories from it. I'm trying to think if anything insane went on during that movie. I can't really remember because... Most of the memories are the scenes that we did were so crazed, like, you know, Dale and Brennan fighting each other and Dale trying to hit Brennan with a bicycle while Mary Steenburge is screaming on the front lawn and there's dogs running back and forth. Like, I don't think anything outside the movie ever compared to that. I do remember we got way into some video game, John C. Riley and I. You know, Riley's a, even though he's doing an absurd comedy with Step Brothers, he's still a method actor. So he really wanted video games, and so he and I started playing some game. I think it was called Resistance, where, like, World War II soldiers are fighting aliens. And we got so into it that we started, like, every day we were playing every break we had. We would run to the game and play. And then after a while, while, Riley started coming in early. So if his call time was 6.30, he would come in at 5.30, and he would tell all the ADs, look, I'm here to play this game. Don't anyone bother me till my call time at six thirty. You go and play the game. Um, so yeah, I, I think what happened with that movie is we all became basically twelve-year-old jackasses, like the people that were in the movie. Well, it worked, and it's. Um, I think it's really cool that ten years later, like people are mentioning, like, "Hey, it's a ten-year." I mean that. I feel like even though in the moment you can spend all these hours on it, I imagine um, that's incredibly satisfying that 10 years later we're still this obsessed with the movie. And Un- I do, Unbelievable. I mean, it's I, unbelievable. Yeah, Will and I constantly just laugh about it. We're like, how, of all the movies we did, this is the one that's kind of, I mean, you know, they all have little followings. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's super cool to see this, no question. Okay, so there's there's a couple other things I want to get to, and I feel like you've done a million different things in the Big Short. Um, and I, I my favorite thing that I've I just like because um, you know I don't I don't get as much of this in the sports world, but this def- it definitely happens to us as on air guys, right? Like, hey, you do this, but there's no way you can do this, and you're like, well, how do you know I can't do that? I've never done that before. You never give me a chance. Like, maybe I can do it, and then if I do it and I do it well, then a boss will go, hey, we didn't know you could do that really good job and you're like well the only reason i didn't get to do it before is because you never gave me the opportunity and i think for somebody like you who's the improv snl these amazing comedy movies and then you're like i want to do the big short i, I imagine some people are like well hey adam you know look what what are you like are you kidding me you're gonna do and i love the book and I've, I've listened to you explain like as you read the book you go no no there's a story here i can do this how hard was it for you and is it true that you had to do anchorman 2 to get everybody to sign off on it you know, it was uh, it was exactly like you said. I read the book in one night. I couldn't put it down, and I just was like, oh, that's one of the best books I've read about this era that we live in, and I just felt like it cracked. But then I just naturally assumed, like, oh, Scott Luton's going to get this, or one of those types of producers, and there's no way they'd ever look at me, so I just let it go away. And, yeah, it was a couple of years later, my agent called me and was like, if you could do anything, what would you do? I just right away said the big short. He's like, hold on. And he called and plan B, Brad Pitt's company had it, uh, D.D. Gardner, Jeremy Kleiner over there. And I got really lucky because they weren't so snobby that they were like, you're a comedy guy. They actually loved the idea. They were like, wait a minute. This could be what cracks this movie open. They had a script that was really good 
but hadn't quite cracked it. And they were just game from the very first meeting we had. I just told them, like, I have a bunch of ideas for this. I want to give it a go. And then the second lucky thing was that we went over to Paramount with it, where it was set up. And the executive over there at that time was Adam Goodman, who I had known way back from Anchorman. And he just flat out told me, he just said, look, I mean, most places would put you in like a development run around on it where you got to rewrite it for like a year and a half and they hope you go away. But he just told me, this, look, this is really, you know, I'd done the rewrite of the script. He goes, this is really good. If you get cast, we'll do it. And they usually don't say that. And then the third, I guess, incredibly lucky thing was that we then in one week proceeded to get like the most dream cast you could ever put together, like Christian Bale, Ryan Gosling, Brad Pitt. It was just like, boom, boom, boom. We got all these yeses in one week. So definitely the stars aligned on that one. And, uh, but the, the credit goes in a big way to the Plan B guys and to that, that cast and the Adam Goodman. They were all the ones who could have said, you're a comedy guy. You can't do this. And I had tried to do other movies before that that were different and had a hard time getting over that hump. I had a big rated R superhero movie I really wanted to make that was super dark and no one would make it. I took it to all the studios and I think it was half and half. They were afraid of rated R superhero movie and it was before Deadpool had come out and they were afraid of comedy guy doing it. So, uh, yeah, that was one of those ones where everything just lined up perfectly. So, so the Anchorman two thing isn't true then, because I don't, I don't, I didn't know if I, not, I don't know if I was touching not on really. something. I mean, I think part of it is just that I think have we already done Anchorman two form. I think we had, and fortunately, it made them a bunch of money, and they were very happy with it. Okay. So, I, I think the way it helped was just good feelings, like okay, this guy delivered for us, and had you know we had also produced some movies over there that had also done really well. So we had kind of a, a nice hot streak going at Paramount. So that's probably what the key was. I think the rumor I heard was like they were hoping I would do Anchorman 3. And I think there is some truth to that. I think like in the discussions with the agents, they're like, look, let him do this. And he'll also do Anchorman 3 for you, you know. Uh, but I don't think there was a promise made, but I think it was kind of floated. You know, a lot of these studios want to keep good relations with writer-directors, so they will do the big movie for him or, you know, so you want to kind of keep a man in the budget for big show. It wasn't that high. So I think from their point of view, it was like, yeah, okay, this is a good move. We'll keep good relations with them. But then in the end, they ended up making a ton of dough off it. So they were happy about that unto itself. Yeah. When I was listening to you describe, you know, the big short in, in different ways, you know, and I watched a bunch of the junkets and stuff and, um, you know, I think so many people would have read that story and gone, okay, well, this is really interesting. And now I understand the financial crisis better. And then, but there's no story here. And you're like, no, no, this is just like, why, why does every story have to be a hospital cops relationship? You know, let's, let's try to tell a different story. And I think Michael Lewis, to his credit, every book I've ever read by him, uh, and I've read a bunch, he's just such at his core, he's a great storyteller. And what I love about the financial crisis is that everybody had the explanation after the fact. And then once it all fell apart, they had the explanation that made sense. And you're like, well, where was this explanation when it was going on? Like, I love in Boomerang. I don't know if you read that one, too. But I love Boomerang, yeah. Boomerang's incredible. Like, every chapter, I'm laughing my ass off because, like, the Icelandic thing. And you go, well, how is it that, you know, there's, like, 30 people that live on the island. They're all fishermen, and they're the, be- they're the best bankers. And, like, in the moment, New York City and all the banks are going, well, it's because they all, you know, they, they, their, their genealogy line, like, it's so pure. And they're, they're very systematic in their decision making. And they're just, they, they're keen and they see numbers differently. And you're like, no, they're just borrowing and stealing like everybody else is. Like, it, and it was just, you, it, people were trying to 
rationalize and talk themselves into a, a conclusion about the success of all these different areas financially when it was all just a big part of the whole scam. And then after the fact, you're like, oh, maybe they don't. Like they're lighting their, their Range Rovers on fire for the insurance money. So no, that, it has nothing that's to do with the, being Icelandic. That image I always remember, the sound of the cars blowing up at night. <laughs> all the people that can't afford the car payments anymore. I always thought, like, if you did a movie version of it, I would open with that, with just the explosions in the distance. Uh, so haunting. And uh, and also how they would find abandoned cars at the airport for, like, months and months afterwards, that it was the uh, Polish immigrants who had come because of all the money, and then they would buy, like, Mercedes and be driving around in them, and then they're like, the money was gone, so they just parked them at the airport and flew away. Um I, we actually talked about adapting that boomerang. It's really good. And and you're right, too. That The key to the big short, what made it manageable, was that it had an ending. And, you know, the trick with these kind of ambitious stories is that you don't have an ending. And, uh, you know, the one we're working on now, we're doing one about Dick Cheney. And I, the first time I knew that we had a movie, it was like, oh, we have an ending. And uh, And that was the key with the big short. That ending is so... All the guys win, but there's such heartbreak in the end, and, and the fact that it's a true story too makes it even more powerful. And I got to meet the real guys, and it, it was all true. And and how they were all kind of ripped apart by it, and never viewed the world with the same kind of optimism again. And uh, and yet it all made hundreds of millions of dollars. It was just such a great thing that you you make all the money in the world. But in the end, you kind of lost that light of the world, that that bittersweet ending. I just knew it was a movie from that. Well, I, I can't compliment you enough on it because it really, I mean, it's not just because I like you or you come in the podcast. It's one of those where I read the book, I was blown away. I told everybody, I, in a way, I almost like Boomerang better because it tells, I don't want to say it that way, but like there's just every chapter, you know, the, the, the resort in Ireland that they're trying to build and some sheep farmer after it goes bust is like, I've lived here my whole life and I've never wanted to be here. So why was the resort going to work? When I went to Greece after I'd read oh. Boomerang, I started asking everybody like, how come you guys don't pay your taxes? Like, what's the deal? And every guy I met in Greece was the only guy that paid taxes. And then everybody else didn't, which I thought was hilarious. I'd be like, what's the story? Like, you guys are just like emotionally against paying taxes. So as as you have the success of this movie, I think it puts you in another category. Just a few more minutes left here because I know you're going to get back to work. Um, watching Succession on HBO where you're the producer and you directed, I don't know how many, the first, the pilot and – and I just want to make sure I get the credits right on this because I know that's you know, very important. Uh, just the pilot, and then, yeah, I'm an EP on it as well. So we helped develop the show with uh, Jesse Armstrong, the creator. Right. So Jesse is, is the creator, but I would imagine that because of the big short, like, guys go, hey, let's let's get Adam. And the thing I like about this is that it's it's not – well, I guess I'm only five episodes in, so I don't want to act as if I understand the entire story arc of, of the first season. But it's it's a story that – is is very timely um but it i feel like so many different tv shows like i can't keep up with every single twist where it's like hey well, i want to tell this story but then it's boom boom in all these different things and you're like oh I, you know but this is more about just a real family drama here that i think plays well i think it's shot incredibly well i mean i even think the piano edits and and how the piano transition the scenes it's really perfect and almost ominous at times um but i i'd imagine that the big short and then you know will and all the hbo stuff um opens these doors to you now that you know maybe wouldn't have been there just after stepbrothers oh i don't think there's any doubt yeah that that was one of those ones where you know we've all known jesse armstrong's one of the best writers around 
you know, he's written uh, episodes of Black Mirror. He wrote In the Loop. He was nominated for that. Uh, he created the show Peep Show. He's written for Veep. I mean, he's just one of the absolute top-tier writers. And when I heard he was doing this, and one of our producers, Kevin Messick, caught wind of it, I was just like, oh, my God, I want to do that. And especially, I mean, what's strange about it is we're making the show in New York, and then Trump wins the presidency, and, you know, regardless of a person's beliefs about him, clearly he started appointing his children to positions. You know, Ivanka Trump comes in, his son-in-law comes in. So that's while we're making this show that's about dynastic wealth and nepotism. It's actually, like, happening around us, which was in no way were any of us hoping that the show would be that prophetic. Uh, and then at the same time, you've seen all these twists and turns with the Murdoch family, with the Redstone family. So... Yeah, I really felt like he was on the right square with this. I think this idea of like crazy accumulated, accumulated wealth, what does it do to people? What does it do to a family? I mean, all of our families have stories. We're all a little dysfunctional on some level. Uh, and then I also felt like he just can't shoot it like a snappy comedy, that if you do that, it, it kind of makes it too much of a, a fantasy land, that you should treat this with like kind of reality and gravitas and then let the funny come out of that. And what I love about it is it's such a blend of tones. You know, it's, it can be really funny. It can be really tragic and dramatic. Uh, we were influenced a lot by that movie, uh, The Celebration, the early movies of Neil LeBute. Like, there's very few things that kind of do that tone. So it's been fun. It's been really fun to see people kind of catch on with it because I think initially people were like, wait a minute, what's the tone of this show? And now that it's fully chugging along, uh, more and more I'm seeing people catch it. And... By the way, you're totally right about that music. That's Nicholas Bertel, who uh, wrote the score for Moonlight, I think one of the best scores in many, many years, and also did the score for The Big Short and is doing the score for the one I'm working on now. And he's kind of the, the hotshot new composer out there right now. He's just, he's the real deal. And he combines like, he combines like hip hop with classical music. If you notice that theme song has kind of a, a, a killer beat to it, yet at the same time, He's a classically trained pianist, uh, pianist, and there's like no one out there doing what he's doing, and and that thing is so infectious. Yeah, I like I like that it repeats because it almost like resets you as the viewer, you know, and and it's it's yeah. not it's not um you know it's not repetitive in a bad way. It's almost like hey, you know, okay, we're do, we're doing something else here, and I, I always think, especially even like with the well produced podcasts, like audio. Even when I was doing a show and you know eight minute segment, if you just reset the listener just to remind him, and in this case, it almost reminds the viewer, like hey, you know, I don't want to lose you here. Um, I have. If you can give me one more minute on this, because I only thought that this was really important for the listeners of this podcast, is that when you mentioned this this mentor that you had back in improv, is it Dell? You would you would mention. Um, yeah, but yeah, and yeah, Del Del Close. Okay, uh, Del Close. I, I think it's fair to credit him with the invention of long form improv. He used to direct a group back in the '60s here in LA called the Committee, which and you may know this reference, but the way you would know the Committee is through a movie called Billy Jack. And Howard Hessman and his group, the Committee, are actually in that movie which is one of the first great indie movies of the 70s about a Vietnam veteran who knows Kung Fu who fights racists. Uh, I'm going to right away say if anyone hasn't seen Billy Jack, go immediately see it. Um, so anyway, this guy, Del Close, came through all of that. He was also an actor. He's in some episodes of uh, Get Smart and been in some movies. And he, he's kind of this uh, you know, beatnik, super smart hipster guy 
who came up with this idea that you could do improvisation with a large group of people on stage, which up until that part point was like insanity. Like, no, no, you got to do improv with two people or you got to have like a quick little game. So he invented this form called the Herald. And then through that form, started creating other forms. And I was lucky enough that my group, when I was in Chicago, uh, starting in 1991, 92, we got to be like his test group. So he would work out all the new forms with us. And we would do these long form shows with him. And uh, yeah, of all the teachers I think I've ever had, that's the teacher who like made a tangible difference. Like he had certain rules and beliefs about comedy that just have always stuck with me. And the way but there was there was this one, and, not to interrupt, but like there's this one thing that I just I thought it was so profound and it made me think about it. I'm just talking about reading an interview where look, I've never been an actor, don't want to be one, but where he had said your first thought as an improv person or playing any character is, is the predictable one. The second thought, like your second instinct and how to play it becomes the one where, you know, but what you want to do is get to that third thought, like take it to this third level, like get, take the first two steps out of the way. And I, that kind of blew my mind a little bit. And I wonder how much of that at its core is kind of like what you've done with your career and how you see film and how you see comedy and try to tell stories. Yeah, I think that's, I think you nailed it. That quote is kind of the center of what he did. And what he would do is he would put you on stage and he would make you go as slow as you needed to go to get to that third thought. And he would actually stop you and go, that's not your third thought. And you would have to stand there and look for the third thought. It's incredibly uncomfortable. And what would happen is he would teach these classes and there's certain students would drop out because you think of improv, you think of, ah, oh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be light. I'm going to, you know, maybe meet someone I can date and we'll get some laughs. And he was not doing it that way. And, but when I say he's the teacher that has, has had the biggest impact, it's precisely because of that is that he really got us like digging deeper about what kinds of choices we were making. Now I'm 50 years old. So I probably would have to go to the fourth thought to equal a younger person's third thought. But, uh, but I always, yeah, that's the key, and, and always play at the top of your intelligence, and the key to that is, even if you're doing dumb characters, make sure they're stupidly brilliant, you know, and The Simpsons is the best example of that. So, yeah, that third thought thing, that's kind of the key to everything he did, and he really treated it, even though you're doing comedy, I and mean, this is a guy who trained, like, you know, John Belushi, uh, Bill Murray, I mean, you name it, Harold Ramis, Gilda Radner, all these incredible people came through, Chris Farley, Mike Myers. Um, Tina Fey, you know, my whole generation. Um, but he really treated it with a tremendous amount of seriousness, even though what we were doing could oftentimes be pretty silly and funny. But, uh, yeah, yeah, he was huge. He's still kind of, he's still revered in Chicago. I was just back there. My wife directed a play, uh, actually, uh, at the Red Orchid Theater with Michael Shannon. And they still have a plaque of him on Second at Second City. I love seeing it, but there's a big plaque for Del Close. Kind of fantastic. It's at Ghost Panther. That actually is Adam McKay's handle on Twitter. Um, and uh, I know that there's a story behind it, but maybe we'll do that another time. Hey, Adam, I really appreciate all this time, man. Um, and I know a lot of the listeners get a real, uh, real just sense of joy just learning your story and um, knowing the background of some of this stuff. My absolute pleasure, man. 